I am seeking. Searching for the things this world has rejected. The things that are broken, that are flawed, thrown away and discarded. I seek the lost, the damaged, the forgotten things, the overlooked and the neglected. The things that have been pushed aside and left behind. Why do I do this? Why chase after that which is despised by so many? It is because I have chosen the rejected. I bring restoration to the broken. I see beyond the flaws and the imperfections and I bring new life to the lost. This world has called them useless garbage, hopeless and unwanted. They have been scarred, abused, ignored and unloved, but I, I have reclaimed them and they belong to me now. They are my masterpiece and I have a plan and a future for every single one. I am crafting these dissonant and discarded pieces into something beautiful. you guess as to how this happened. I give you two uh, choices. I either pointed my finger at Teresa one too many times, or I uh, heard it playing softball. <sighs> I retired from softball on Saturday. The first, you believe the first one? <laughs> well... It happened playing softball on Tuesday, and funny part, I went to my pharmacist to get some pain medicine on Wednesday, and he said, well, Thad, how'd you do that? I was like, well, I was playing softball, and he just went, and I stopped, I stopped playing softball when I was in my 30s, and I just stopped yesterday. I sent my coach an email, and I said, I'm done. Because if I have to choose between golf and softball, there is no choice. I'm playing golf. I have to tell you, I'm pretty uncomfortable today. And um, a lot of it has to do with what the Lord has been doing with me since 6.15 to 6.30 this morning. Um, I always come on Sunday mornings to get here about that time. And I just spend time reviewing the message and... And I just was not comfortable, and I said, okay, Lord, what is going on? Why am I not comfortable? What's happening? Because I don't like this. And um, so 
just for the sake of accountability, this is what we were going to cover today or attempt to. And um, the Lord's like, no, Thad, you're going to cover this. And it relates to what we're talking about, but I hope it's going to make sense to you. I hope it's going to be something that's um, challenging for you. And it ties back to the very first characteristic of the men that are mentioned in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. Remember what it said? Lovers of self. And so as I was looking at these characteristics this week and studying the definitions of each of those characteristics, one of the things that happened to me um, was checking my attitude about the people out in the world who are like this, who are characterized by these different things that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3. You know, and, 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 and the Lord began to deal with me. Hey, Thad, what's your attitude toward those who are in opposition to the gospel? On the outside, and maybe even on the inside. You know, how is your attitude? I guess if I was to, to sum it up in a question, how is your attitude, Thad, toward those who are without Christ? Well, that's a, it's a good question to consider. And the Lord led me to some other questions, and I want to kind of deal with those today, and I hope that um, you'll be patient and gracious as we look at some things together from the Scriptures. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, terrible times will come. And then he says, for men will be lovers of self. What does the Lord tell us about love in the Bible? He says we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And then what are we to do? Love our neighbors as ourselves. So I got thinking about that. And, you know, there's a big push, I think, um, not only outside the church, but inside the church in some instances where there's this propensity toward, hey, we need to teach people to love themselves. But the Bible never talks about teaching anybody to love themselves. What does the Bible assume? That we what? Love ourselves. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, in the context of husbands, they're to um, love their wives as their own flesh. And then what does he say? For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. So the assumption is that man does love himself. So one of the questions I began to think through this morning was, as the Lord was dealing with me, is what is the greatest way we can express love to those in our world and in the body? And it is to share the gospel, period. That's the greatest way we express love toward those who are in opposition to the gospel, it's the greatest way we express love to those who believe in a social gospel. It's to share the gospel. Now, from the perspective of the world, those who focus in on feeding and clothing others, which there's nothing wrong with that, they're saying that's what Christians do. And Christians are involved in those things. All of us have probably at some time and point been involved in sharing with others, right? Whether it's food or clothing or such. But how often, and that looks good to the world. The world's like applauding the church. You're doing a good job. But how often is our love expressed 
to the opposition, to the world, in terms of sharing with them what Christ has done for us in our lives and how he's changed. So I have a couple of questions I need to ask you this morning. What is your attitude, since I've already had to deal with this, what is your attitude toward the unbeliever or the opposition? I was looking up some terms, and I looked up the term attitude, and this is what it means. It means an internal position or feeling with regard to something else or someone else. Have you ever caught yourself with wrong feelings toward those in the world? You ever, has that ever happened to you? <laughs> I mean, where you're just like, you have so much animosity about something that's going on, you're forgetting the fact, or I'm forgetting the fact, that these people have a condition that they're lost. Well, I also found out something else about the word attitude. Did you know that airplane pilots use the word attitude? When I first started reading this, I'm like, they mean altitude, right? <laughs> Altitude's kind of important, especially if you're in the plane and you're not the pilot. But did you know that attitude was used to describe their horizontal relationship with the runway when they land? I had no idea. How many of you knew that? <laughs> I had no idea, right? If their attitude isn't aligned properly, the plane will make contact with the ground at the wrong angle and it will cause them to crash. So I got finished reading about attitude. I'm like, I'm all about attitude for those pilots. But then I began to think about it as it relates to us as believers. What is our attitude toward those who are without Christ? Whether they're outside the church or inside the church. So I want you to take your Bibles and briefly with me go to 1 Timothy as we answer this first question. 1 Timothy in the second chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's two big questions I want to ask you today, and this is the first one. What is our attitude toward the unbelieving world? Because when you come to the description of the men who influence and who come in and take captive weak-willed women, that's what the Bible says there in, in 2 Timothy 3, um, we need to, to think through, hey, how do we handle these people who are out to destroy the church of God. What is really their problem? And as I look at the scriptures, the problem with the unbelieving world is that they're unbelieving. They don't know Christ. And so I need to make sure that my attitude toward the unbelieving is right. And so it, the Spirit led me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it's interesting because Paul is telling Timothy, this is how you need to pray. This is how the church at Ephesus needs to pray. Look what it says. He says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made behalf, on behalf excuse me, of all men. Notice where he starts for kings. For those who are in authority... And then he says here, and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
This is good, he says, and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And notice what verse 4 says. Who, meaning the Savior, desires all men to be what? Saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this is what happens when some people read that. They'll just immediately go, well, we know everyone's not going to be saved. And that is true. Not everyone is going to be saved. But that's not the viewpoint we need to walk around with. We need to walk around taking the responsibility that God has given us to share the gospel of Christ with others and let him do the work. Isn't it interesting in this little short section that he doesn't tell Timothy how to pray necessarily. He doesn't tell him that. But how do we pray for those that are kings and those who are in authority? How do we pray for them? How do we pray for our president? That he would come to know Christ. Right? I think sometimes it's almost like we have to convince ourselves that this is something we have to do. But it's a privilege, is it not? To pray for those that are lost. Because the only thing that's going to change their lives permanently is Christ. The only one that can do that is Christ. So the responsibility that we have toward those who are lost is to pray that they will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So as I was thinking about Paul and in the context as he's writing, who was in authority in Rome? Nero. Great guy. Just want to hang out with him, right? No, not so much. How was he known? As a persecutor of what? Christians. So if you're Timothy, you're like, hold on a second, Paul. You got this right? Yeah, he's got it right. Praying for kings and all those who are in authority. You see, unfortunately, I think this is what happens in the church. I think in the church sometimes there's a tendency to just be so focused here that we forget out there. I got saved when I was seven. Seven years old. I've been saved a long time. My first experience on the mission field, as we define it, foreign missions, which since then, since I was younger, I was like, the mission field's all around us. But my first experience on the mission field was in 1992 when I went to Belize. And I'll never forget Pastor Stam. He said, Thad, you're going to Belize with me. I was like, I'm, <laughs> I mean, is this like a uh, yes or no? Or, I mean, can I just decide on my own? And he's like, you're going to Belize. Well, I'm going to Belize. Now, I have to be honest with you. My heart at that time when he first mentioned it, I was like, I don't want to go to Belize. But you know what happened to me in Belize in 1992? The Lord opened my eyes that year, that very first time, and said, you know what, Dad? There are a lot of lost people in the world. That's what he did for me. There are a lot of lost people. And you know what he got me to doing, which is probably may sound weird to you, but it was like, hey, there are people in Belize that are lost, 
But the Lord is reminding me, hey, Thad, there are people in green New York where you are that are lost. It's not about just this nice place you go to on a Sunday morning. And there's air conditioning, and there's people who profess to know Christ, and there's Sunday school classes, and there's Awana, and there's all these things that are, that are for the believers. And it's like, hey, Thad, there's a lost world out there. And a lot of times, let's be honest, when we thought about missions years ago, it was like we need to, you know, we need to send missionaries out, and we need to send them to foreign lands because everybody else doesn't know Christ, but we do. And then we've come to find out that, as Dr. Hugh Hughley said one time, and I'll never forget this, in the book, we were studying the book of Acts, and he said, he made this statement, one day, the missionaries will come to the United States. I was like, man, that ain't going to happen, right? We're arrogant about that. They're never going to come here. But they're here. Well, what's our attitude toward the unbeliever? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know. I mean, you know, I've only had a few hours to think about this particular question and just assess it in my own life. And, and there are times, I'm just, I'm just honest with you, and it's like I have to remind myself that, you know, this person I might disagree with about something that's going on. I mean, I don't need to see them as, hey, I disagree with them on this particular viewpoint, I need to see them as, hey, they might need Christ. And what we're going to have to do is throw away our pride. That's what's going to have to happen. So the first question is, how is our attitude? The second question that I wrote down is, what is our story? You have a story. Take your Bibles and go to Acts 26. We'll spend the remainder of our time there, but before we do, what's your story? What, what's your story? I mean, do you have one? I was thinking about my story this morning, and I was privileged to grow up in a Christian home. My parents were both believers. I heard the gospel over and over again, got saved when I was seven. Went to a Bible church, heard the scriptures all the time. All the time. They were reinforced to me. Was privileged to go to a Bible camp, Camp Pearl. Was there every year. Heard the scriptures over and over again. And then, when I was about 13 years old, I'll never forget being in a youth rally and one of the youth pastors saying to me, how has the Lord changed your life? How's he doing that? What are you doing about the change that's taking place in you? I'm like, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? Right? What am I, I, I didn't know. When I was 14 or 15 years old, we had another youth rally, and I was in a little bit of rebellion then. And so the Lord was dealing with me on my rebellion. And then when I was 17 years old as a senior in high school, I, I didn't divorce all my friends, but I started making better decisions. I'll just say that. And then that summer... My dad came outside and said to me, son, you're not going to bum off me the rest of your life. You can go to Bible college for a year or you can go to school. I'll support you in whatever you're going to do. I was like, let me get this Bible college stuff over with. That was my mind. And so I came to, to Birmingham in 1982. That's part of my story. 
And then the Lord took over from there and just started moving me all around and introducing me to young people who had the mind that they wanted to do what the Lord wanted to do. And wherever that meant, you know, wherever that meant they needed to go, they would go. And I'm like, man, that's different. And then being exposed to Bible college teachers and professors who had at their center the Word of God. And I'm like, man, this is real stuff to consider. And I didn't know it at the time, and I wouldn't have been able to describe it as part of the sanctification process, but that's what was going on. <laughs> and I'll never forget sitting on the front of the administration building porch at the old campus on Pawnee Avenue, which was the campus, as far as I'm concerned. Sitting on there and many times thinking, Lord, where are you going to send me? And being in tears at times and going, wherever it is, Lord, I'll go. And then having a wife to tell me in 1990, in the fall of 1998, wherever the Lord sends you, I'm right there with you. I'm like, hey. So then I get response from Del Rio, Texas, and Green, New York. Wow, what a difference, right? Two churches that wanted me to come. I think because nobody else wanted to go to those locations, right? And so we end up in Green, New York, and that's part of the story. And then we come to Springville Road 96, and the Lord just keeps, you know, on with this story. And I recognized after my heart surgery in 19, as I look back this morning, I'm like, man, Lord, you're adding to my story. Appreciating life every day I have. Zoning in on the fact that, yes, I love my grandkids. I just want them to get saved. That's what I want. Recognizing this last year that God has given me a tremendous opportunity to be in a public school and to talk to a baseball team, which has just... I don't even know how to put it in words. What God has done in my heart and my life with those boys. I can't wait to see them. I mean, every day I'm like, man, Lord, I just can't wait to see them. I told Teresa, I said, Thursday night I'm going to be at Spain Park. What are you doing at Spain Park? I'm going to see my boys. That's why I look at them like, Lord, here, I know there are at least 20 of those boys that don't know you. So... The Lord's adding to my story. What about your story? Like, if, if you're writing your story, what does that involve? What does that include? Is in that story God moving you in terms of, hey, you need to be more sensitive to the lost? Because that's what he's done for me, especially this past year. I need to be more sensitive to the lost. I'm just being honest with you. Well, if I gave you the assignment for next week to write out your story, is that a good thing? Update your story. Everybody in this room who belongs to Christ, type out your story this week, if you can type. Can't type? Write it out. Write out your story. When the Lord saved you, and from that point on, what he's done in your life. There's a story in Acts 26, and I want to show you this story. Because I think it's going to help us to see that whether 
large or small, so to speak, in our culture, we all have the responsibility to share our faith with others. Paul has been arrested. He's in front of Agrippa. There's a series of chapters here which talk about Paul's defense. And in chapter 26, he appears before Agrippa. Imagine if you appeared before President Biden. And he gave you 10 minutes. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> make that list. Maybe after you update your story. But make that list. What, what are you talking to him about? Foreign affairs. The debt that we have in the United States. What are you talking to him about? I think it's a good question. Our temptation would be to focus on what? What's going to help me? What's going to serve me? What's going to serve the people? Is there anything wrong with wanting to serve the people? No. But what's the greatest need potentially in that man's life? To know Christ. Sometimes I think we have to convince ourselves that's his greatest need. That might sound weird to you, but I think that happens to us. That we're so caught up in what's going on around us, and we look at all the different things that we don't like, we go, well, if I had 10 or 15 minutes in front of him, I'd say, you need to do this and stop doing this. But maybe our mind would be a little bit like Paul. I mean, he had a great opportunity here before Agrippa. Notice what it says, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today. <laughs> what an opportunity. Especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I find that to be interesting. That Paul is just literally begging him. Hey, listen. Listen. I've got something important for you to hear. And it's not my view about this or that. It's about how Christ changed his life. And all the events that led up to that. Notice verse 4. He says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. You remember in the book of Philippians, I'll just read this. Um, you remember Paul in that section in Philippians talking about what he was before Christ and the achievements, right? How man would see him. He says, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself, Paul says, might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I fall more. He's like, I was the dude. That's what he's saying in this chapter. I was the guy. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
circumcised the eighth day. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, man, I'm buttoned up. And according to the world, that looked good. And so when he says here in the book of Acts, he says, a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion, he's referring back to what was going on with him before Christ. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. As for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? <laughs> does God raise the dead? Answer? Yes, he does. He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because Jesus of Nazareth, who had come and had died and had rose again and had ascended, meant he's making a difference in a lot of people's lives, and we have a problem. And I want to get rid of the problem. And the problem is the people who are following the way. So, he was zealous in that. That's what it said in Philippians. He says, and this is verse 10, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. He was a persecutor of believers. Well, then he didn't deserve Christ. That's why we call it grace, isn't it? I don't deserve Christ either. But I got him. I mean, if we're judging by the world and we look in Washington, D.C., we would probably say, deserves him, don't, no, no. You know, I'm not even like, what are, you, what are we talking about? I was in a council meeting one time years ago and I had a guy that was pretty upset with me about something that we were discussing. And as I was leaving that place, he walked up to me and he just looked at me and <laughs> pointed his finger in my face. Pointed, he said, Thad, I, I just disagree with you completely. This isn't the way we need to educate our young people. I said, well, I respectfully disagree with you. And then I looked at him and I said, you know what our young people need the most? They need Christ. Then he thought I was really a lunatic. Guys, people need Christ. And we don't have the authority to say, yeah, I'm going to share with that one, but no, I'm not going to share with it. Now, a lot of this message today is just for me, so if you get something out of it, that's great. But it's for me, obviously, because the Lord gave it to me this morning. He says, verse 11, And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And he was ruthless. Got to give him credit. He was zealous, right? 
I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. While, while so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, underscore that at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, <laughs> brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I don't know how many of you know what a goad is, but a goad is a long pole or stick with a pointed piece of iron on the end of it that was fastened to it, and it was used for guiding oxen. I read in this uh, Bible dictionary the following I'm going to read to you. The ox would be gently prodded, guided, and driven in the desired direction when plowing the fields. But when there was a stubborn ox who attempted to kick back against the goad, it caused discomfort, and the ox would inflict more pain on himself. In Acts, when it is said that Paul kicked against the goads, he was inflicting more pain on himself by resisting the truth and the teachings of Christ. The more he resisted, the more he suffered. Now, I know in theology there is a thing called irresistible grace. My viewpoint on that is at the end of the day, the Lord wins. <laughs> he wins, okay? I don't know who belongs to him, and neither do you. You don't know. They don't wear a T-shirt that says, I'm going to belong to Christ. But it is a fact, for sure, that people do resist, and Paul did. He resisted. But who won at the end of the day? The Lord did. The Lord won. I think sometimes in theology, people spend way too much on the other time on the other side of the curtain and what they don't control and can't see, and far too little time on the obedience piece in terms of the responsibility to witness. All I know is this, the Lord's in control. And Paul knew that. And that's why he says, I planted Apollos water. God caused the growth. God's the one causing the growth. So I need to spend my time not trying to figure out theological positions in some of these areas. I need to spend my time thinking about how am I going to share, share and disseminate the gospel. So it says here, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I love the personal piece of this story. Jesus says, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. And we know we have the rest of that. Half of the New Testament is the Apostle Paul writing what the Holy Spirit guided him in. And so it says, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Notice verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. 
what do we need people today to see? The light. There's darkness all around. We need them to see the light and the hope. And the light of the world is the Lord. He's the only one that can heal a person who is blind. Notice what it says. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion or rule of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Don't you love that benefit of being saved? And an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by what? Sanctified by what? Sanctified by anything else? It says faith. Verse 19, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I love that little short verse. In other words, the Apostle Paul was obedient to what the Lord called him to do. He says, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In other words, I went around and I was faithful to present what Christ had done in my life and who he was. He said in verse 20, notice he said, he kept declaring. It was a habitual pattern in his life. Something I think we can learn from. That the Lord would want us to have the pattern of sharing the gospel. Of sharing how Christ has changed our lives. Verse 21, for this reason some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. I mean there's a cost for sharing the truth. I don't know what generation is going to experience great persecution in the United States, but it's coming. You know that we need to pray for that generation. It may be that it's really close by. And it kind of looks that way, doesn't it, if you look in the world? So some of us may be right in the center of it. And some of us may have to make decisions about, am I going to stand on the gospel or am I going to move away from the gospel? I think one of the things that impresses me about the life of Paul is he just stayed the course. Sounds simple, but not so much. Verse 21, so having obtained help from who? God. Notice that links back to 21. Some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death, so having obtained help from God, and that's where our help comes from, I stand to this day testifying both to small and to great. (laughs) Man, he couldn't stand before anybody else, right? I mean, Agrippa had rule and power and authority. And he says, Stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Now that seems like a pretty, um, maybe if you're reading that, you're going, well, what's the significance of that? Consistency. The prophets and Moses had the same message. Who was coming? Christ, the one that would redeem. So what's the message for us today? Christ. And the one that will what? Redeem. 
says, verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer. And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So what was the message of Paul? What was the centrality of that? Christ and the suffering that he endured? The gospel. Now, when you look at that, you go, well, okay, that, I know that. Yeah, but it's one thing to know it. And then it's another thing to say, you know what? No matter what comes, I'm going to stand on it. And remember the context with which we're in in 2 Timothy. It was going to literally cost him, what, his head. No wonder he writes with such urgency and, and fervor as he's writing that letter to Timothy. So he doesn't get off message. Now that might sound like, yeah, okay, you know, I know all that. But that's a big deal because there are people that get off message. There are people in churches who get off message and their focus is a social gospel. And their focus is on health, wealth, and prosperity theology, which I don't know how that went for them this last year. How do you explain all that? There's a lot of suffering this past year, wouldn't you say? For a lot of people. Do you know what? The Lord is present in our lives, in all the good, and in all the bad. <laughs> And notice verse 24. It says, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. <laughs> your great learning is driving you mad. So that's Festus' response. Dude, you're crazy. You're outside your mind. Anybody ever told you that? Everybody said, you're crazy. You ever had anybody look at you and just reject Jesus Christ to your face and say, you're nuts? I've had that happen a few times. In fact, I had it happen one time with a guy that was in New York State, and he said, Thad, you're crazy. There's nobody that could come back from the dead. I said, well, let's just look at what the Bible says. He said, well, I don't believe that. I said, well, and I began to go down this track of, hey, do you recognize this book as a book of history? He said, oh, yeah. No question about that. I said, well, how many copies of that book? And so we started talking about the copies and how many copies we had of Scripture. Long story short, you know what happened to this man? The Spirit of God worked in this man over a period of time and he got saved. See, the Lord's the one that changes people. Festus said, you're out of your mind. Paul said, verse 25, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I utter words of what? Sober truth. There was a man several years ago who had a lot of FaceTime, we'll just say that way. A lot of FaceTime through his books, through TV interviews. And one of the one of one of his main issues was that that hell did really not exist. And that eventually everybody would end up in heaven. His name was Rob Bell. Anybody heard of him? Is that biblical theology? No. Is it dangerous? 
Yeah, it is. It's very dangerous. So when we declare, as Paul did, sober truth, it will be offensive to people. It will be. Verse 26 says, For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, it's been out front. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And Paul says, I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, how did he mean that? Do we know? Do we know what his attitude was in that? You know, was he joking with him as a rebuttal to what was said? We don't know that. But what did Paul ask him to do in the very beginning? Listen to me. I'm begging you to listen. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, look at his response. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. What's he saying? I'm praying that, listen, all man, including yourself, would know Christ and the change that he can make in your life. Question. Was Paul faithful to the story? Answer, yes. What was the centrality of the story? Was it Paul or was it Christ? It was Christ. So the assignment that I mentioned a few minutes ago that might be uncomfortable but I think important, would you be willing this afternoon or this week to write out your story? Is there a desire in your heart and in your life to tell the story. To tell the story about Jesus Christ and his love for mankind. I know this. I could use a tune-up in that. And the Lord has used some events over this last year or two to kind of help me re-engage in that area. There's a hymn that we sing, um, or that was sung years ago. It's not sung as much. Hymns just aren't sung as much, but... The hymn is, I love to tell the story. Catherine Hankey, who lived from 1834 to 1911, grew up in the family of a wealthy English banker and was associated with the evangelical wing of the Anglican church. As a teenager, she taught a girls' Sunday school class. Later, she traveled to South Africa to serve as a nurse and to assist her invalid brother. While recovering from a lengthy illness of her own at age 30, she wrote a poem on the life of Christ. This poem had two sections. The first published in January of 1866 and entitled The Story Wanted. The second published later that year in November under the title The Story Told. Our hymn, the one we have, is drawn from stanzas in the second section. The text of the refrain was written by the composer of the music, William G. Fisher, in 1869. A musician herself, Hanky wrote her tunes for the text, but others found little use for them. In 1867, Englishman Major General Russell 
cited the text of, I love to tell the story. At a large international YMCA gathering in Montreal, a composer of more than 2,000 gospel songs, including music uh, for many of Fanny Crosby's hymns, was in the audience. His musical setting did not stick, but another setting composed by William G. Fisher, a Philadelphia musician and piano player, did. And when Philip Bliss and Ira Sankey included Fisher's version in their influential gospel hymns and sacred songs, which was published in 1875, its fame was assured. This personal, intimate language comes through in such phrases, for example, as... It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. And it did so much for me, and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. Hanky was passionate about this story and how it changed her life. You hear that? Passionate about the story and how it changed her life. In the refrain, the word love takes on a double meaning, both about the state of the singer and the message of Jesus. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. Listen to these words. I'm not going to sing the song, but we will sing it in a minute. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story more wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies of all my golden dreams. That's pretty heavy language. In other words, it's the most important message that we have. It's the most important possession we have. How does that fit in with our culture today? Not real well. How does that fit in in the church culture today? I'm not sure real well. I love to tell the story. It did so much for me, and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. I love to tell the story. Tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard. Can you imagine that? You say, with that, i got to go around the world. No, you don't. You can go across the street. When I shared the gospel with some baseball boys recently, you could just see it. You could see it. They hadn't heard it. And if they've heard it, they hadn't heard it much. And I'm not sure what they heard. We don't have to go around the world anymore. (laughs) We can go next door. For some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. We don't have to make it up, guys. You know, one of the hardest things to do is to share the story. It is. I understand that. But, you know, recently I received from someone in this congregation a text message. It was really cool. <laughs> and the text message was that I gave a gospel of John. You know, we have them out there in the, in the foyer. I gave a gospel of John to this person, and I'm asking that you will pray for that person. 
I did. I responded to the person that sent me that text message and recently asked how that was going. You don't have to be an evangelist to do the work of evangelism. <laughs> That's what Paul tells Timothy. Verse 4, I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Seem hungry and thirsty to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Can you imagine what that's going to be like to sing worship hymns and songs to our Lord? Then you know the chorus. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. You know, it is satisfying to tell others about the gospel of Christ. My prayer is that as we consider the characteristics of these people coming up next week, that we will pray that the Lord would give us a heart for those who are opposed to the gospel. That our love for the Lord and for others and their eternal salvation would rule the day. And that we would say, Lord, with your help and by your spirit, give me opportunities to step through that door, to fly through that window, and share Christ with others. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that um, when we assess our life, one of the great opportunities we have is to reflect on our own salvation. The day that we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, what he did for us on the cross and by faith believe in what his sacrifice accomplished. I know, Lord, that one of the, I think, battles that we face within the church is to be so churched that we forget that there are people that, you know, daily we come in contact with that don't know you. And I think as we get older we in you, we, we know those things, but we need the the faith to step through that door and say, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to share how you changed my life. And I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would do it unapologetically and that we would have the courage to be able to stand in whatever scene that you allow for us to be able to declare to young people and older people alike, there is but one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ the Lord. Help us, even maybe this afternoon or this week, as we freshen up on our own story of how we came to know you and the things that you've done in our lives to change us, to move us, not only to, to being holy 
but Lord, being godly, having a mind that people are out there and they need answers. You look at this last year and people are grappling for answers and the answer is you. You're in control and you allow things to happen and we don't always understand the whys, but we know at the end of the day who is in charge and that gives us comfort. And Lord, I pray that in this time of, of fear for a lot of people that you would use your church in a mighty way. I truly believe this is one of the greatest times in our history as a nation and around the world to share the gospel. So I pray that we would be diligent and fervent as we receive those opportunities as an individual and that we wouldn't just spend our weeks, you know, doing our thing, but Lord, that we would allow you to do your thing through us as we submit to your spirit on a daily basis. Please help us, Lord, today we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to sing along. I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story of
to do that this morning. Uh, this morning, I like uh, we're doing things a little bit differently, and I'm aware of it, but I'd like for us to end in our time of worship as far as our response to the Lord through the singing. Um, we appreciate Judy uh, filling in for Linda while she's away and Savannah being with us this morning. Um, but I'd like for us just to sing uh, a medley of hymns and the thing about the good thing about hymns are these hymns are about him, H I M. And so, you know, when we put these things together, I want us to think about our worship to him today. Because we're gonna sing hymns about his about his holiness. We're gonna be singing hymns about his power, the power in the name of Jesus. We're gonna be singing hymns about his grace, his love and his mercy. We're going to be singing hymns about how he loves us and how we love him, and we will be able to express that. And then we're going to end with giving him glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore. We want to worship you, Lord. So let's concentrate on the words as we sing together this medley of hymns. Let's all stand as we sing and worship.
Worship him singing about his mercy and his grace.
He's the ruler of all nature. He's the son of God. And he's the son of man. Let's end on this one. people said amen right one of the hardest things to do with um in generations is kind of have an appreciation for <laughs> music that is a very hard thing and i i think it's important that all of us be teachable in that um very important because it's the doctrine of the song that's the essential piece and i know that we live in a culture where um a lot of the hymns have just kind of been thrown out. I'm not for that. And I'm kind of in between generations, you know. And I think that's a blessing because these songs we sang today, I didn't need it. I don't need the words. I, I mean, I, I sung those songs when I was a kid. Some of you young people out there going, wow, you're pretty old. Well, the reality is that when I sat in the church, I didn't know anything different. I mean, we just sang the hymns. And then when praise music started coming out, it wasn't like the praise music now. It was different when it started out in the 80s. And then, and then you know, music has developed. That's the reality of it. It's different now. I understand that. And I want all the young people in the church to know, us ones that have a little bit of gray hair, we understand that. And I like both. I like both. I like the hymns, and I like the praise and worship music. The, the criteria for me is good doctrine. And, you know, when I'm singing these songs today, man, there's a lot of good doctrine in there. And I know some people's mind says, well, yeah, i got to catch up. It's the 21st century. That can't be the mindset. The mindset has to be good doctrine. I don't care if we're singing Amazing Grace, the older version or the newer version, okay? So 
I just would hope and pray that each of us are teachable in that and that we appreciate the history, right? Um, and that one day, young people, when you're old and have gray hair, that, you know, there'll be other music come out. Who knows what that's going to be like, right? And you'll want them to appreciate your praise and worship music. You're like, oh, that's never going to happen. It will happen. Things just progress. So I would just encourage you guys to really think through, you know, just the, the heart attitude of all that. I know I've had to deal with it in the past, and I just really appreciate everybody that leads our worship, you know, from, from Ron and the, the groups now that, I don't even know what, the praise groups now that we have, or whether it's um, Brian Nichols and him leading the, the praise teams. You know, I just want us to keep in mind that good doctrine is the essential piece of that. And um, so anyway, that's my heart in that. I wrote all these notes out when I was, we were singing, and I'm like, man, there's so much good doctrine in here. And just good reminders. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that uh, this morning has been an encouragement to you as well as a challenge. So don't forget to go home and write out your story. All right. Um, just two announcements that need to be made before we dismiss today. Um, just in case you did not notice, our coffee bar is opened again. And uh, Tommy and Andy... Johnson, right there in the front, they kind of run that, and um, I drank my first cup of coffee today that in years, and, and they have this vanilla stuff you can pour in there, it tasted pretty good with that, so um, we appreciate all their efforts, and if you're interested in helping with that, it's a real ministry, if you're interested in helping with that, we'd really appreciate that, you can just see them after church. also wanted to make mention of Field Day, which is for the entire church family next Sunday. Um, it's sponsored by Family Matters, one of our um, Sunday school classes. Um, it's next Sunday. It's from 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock at, at the park next to the old Clay Library. Okay? Um, there'll be hot dogs and chips and drinks, and um, they'll be provided by uh, Family Matters. And then they said they'll have an ice truck there if you wish to purchase dessert our refreshments, and I'm sure you will want to do that. And then it says bring chairs, canopies, picnic accessories, and so forth. So that'll be uh, next Sunday after our service. So I just encourage you, you know, it's good to be together again. This is another opportunity to be together. And I'm got somebody waving at me. Hey, Christy. Okay, so tomorrow night, women's Bible study begins again, and um, my wife is going through the book of Titus, so um, she probably won't take as long as I do through a book, but if you're interested in, uh, in going through that study, um, that'll be tomorrow night. What time, Christy? 6.30. Okay, and then Friday night, they're having a craft night that starts at... Okay, six o'clock Friday night for ladies, what do you call that, fellowship, crafts, six o'clock. So if you need more information about that, just see Christy. Okay, that's the best way to say that. All right, why don't we uh, bow and let's uh, close our time in prayer. Lord, you're really, 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 really good to us. We have a lot to be thankful for. It is amazing grace. And I, I just love that last 
stanza when we've been there 10,000 years. I mean, just we can't fathom that, but we certainly can stand on that hope and certainty that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming for his church. And we will be together. And the Bible says that we will always be with our Lord. So we want to close by saying thank you for that hope that's coming. May we represent you well this week. And when opportunities arise, help us to walk through those doors. To share the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And how he changed our lives. All this I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.